Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that always wears its seatbelt, even when it's playing Grand Theft Auto. I'm Andrew Harrison. We have an embarrassment of riches for you this week. The money that was only resting in Nadim Zahawi's account, the BBC chairman who just happened to help out Boris Johnson with the small matter of an £800,000 loan, plus the last rights for levelling up, and is it time for the West to bite the bullet and really start supporting Ukraine? But before we start, a small reminder, don't miss Oh God, What Now? Live on Wednesday the 15th of February at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. You are guaranteed a quality evening of political analysis and score settling with Ian Dunn, Ross Taylor, Aisha Hazarika and Alex Andreo. It's always a brilliant night at the Leicester Square Theatre and we will have the return of producer Alex's handmade introduction videos, which are both a treat and the stuff of nightmares. So go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Patreon people, your discount still works. If you want to avail yourself of that discount, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast if you'd like to sign up and help us keep the lights on down here at Ogwen Towers. Now let's meet today's panel. Yasmin Sahan writes for Time, where she covers foreign affairs, democracy and authoritarianism, and she's just come back from Davos. Hi, Yasmin. How was Davos? Hello. Um, freezing. Negative 14 degrees was is my limit, apparently. Yeah, it was good, though. It was. It, it's kind of a reporter's dream. You just have effectively your Twitter feed just walking around you through these corridors. It's totally susceptible to being tapped on the shoulder by a pesky journalist. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a surreal event, but um, it was my first time and I really enjoyed it. Two questions. One, what was the gift bag like? And two, <laughs> who were the best people that you saw? I can assure you that if there was a gift bag, I was not on the receiving end of one. Um, Something tells me those are probably saved for the more high-end attendees. Um, As for the most interesting people I saw, I mean, gosh, it was, we we had a spotted section of a newsletter that my colleague um, Aisha Javid and I co-wrote during the forum. Um, I saw Princess Beatrice. (laughs) chatting to um (laughs) i was just i mean i saw her going down the stairs stared at her name tag was like oh my god but yeah i saw her chatting to the ceos of monzo and dell so um maybe they'll (laughs) have to tell us gosh apart from that i mean a lot of u.s lawmakers just kind of strolling through the halls a lot of members of the ukrainian delegation um what was actually most interesting in my opinion was who wasn't there which was basically every g7 leader apart from olaf schultz and if you tuned in to (laughs) the what people were saying about him in Germany, he probably wished he didn't come. Also this week, Jacinda Ardern resigned as New Zealand Prime Minister after five years, citing burnout. The incoming Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, said the way Jacinda has been treated, particularly by Mm. some segments of our society, has been utterly abhorrent. What has her kind of sudden resignation meant and how how will she be remembered, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think her resignation came as a massive shock, not least to um, her international fans, which I think has been termed Jacinda mania. So I think a big part of that popularity stemmed from the, from the fact that Arjun was really a trailblazer in a lot of ways. You know, she was the world's youngest female leader. Um, she became only the second world leader to give birth whilst in office, and she was the first to take maternity leave. I think she'll be remembered. I'll certainly remember her, at least, for the immense compassion that she showed after the Christchurch shooting and the quick decision-making that followed when she um, passed a a law banning military-style semi-automatic weapons, Um, that kind of decision-making you wouldn't see in the United States, despite having suffered, unfortunately, many, many Christchurch-like shootings um, in our history. Um, And of course, there was her leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, her decision to close New Zealand's borders. I think that part of her legacy um, is a bit more controversial. There are certainly corners of the New Zealand public that didn't like um, the decisions that she took in that um, in that regard, and I think unfortunately, and and her um, her successor Hipkins hinted at this, you know, led to a lot of attacks, a lot of misogynistic threats, and even a lot of death threats. Which, um, as far as I've read in in the, in the media, they, those increased year on year. So, um, unfortunately, I think part of her legacy is also going to show that you know this is what happens when you do have this young female leader in charge. She was the target of of a lot of criticism and a lot of harassment. But I think by and large, her her reputation, certainly internationally, will be a very positive one. Also with us is the presenter of Doomsday Watch and our own international man of mystery, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. Arthur, you just launched a sub-stack called Not All Doom, which is very off-brand for us because we're all doom all the time. And the first piece on it is about how the Russian GRU infiltrated the Swedish intelligence agency. What happened there? So um, Sweden, um, although as is well known, a neutral country, has had a very uh, kind of serious 
intelligence community for for many years and and sees Russia as its primary adversary. And it has just emerged that a a relatively senior officer in the Swedish intelligence agency, a man called Payman Kia, he's of Iranian heritage, but a Swedish citizen, had been spying for the GRU for about 10 years. Uh, he he worked for a while in the kind of the equivalent of MI5, and while he was doing that, he appears to have handed over a entire personnel list. So every single uh, member of that organisation was disclosed to the Russians, and then later on, he worked for another Swedish agency, which is sort of more like MI6. It does overseas spying and is a fanatically secret organization of which almost nothing is known publicly. But of course, now the GIU know a lot about it. So this is a very major breach. I I honestly think for those who've been um, watching the uh, wonderful show on ITV about a spy among friends about Kim Philby, this is at that level. This is a a kind of fundamental breach of Sweden's intelligence services. Are the GIU likely to have penetrated UK security services? Or are we kind of taking a Russia report approach that like what you don't look for can't hurt you? Well, I... Obviously, I I genuinely don't know the answer to that, but you know that they will have been trying hard. And we live in a cynical age. We live in an age where money seems to talk. We live uh, in an age where um, the son of a KGB officer is now in the House of Lords. So anything goes, I guess. Um, Completing the panel in an exciting crossover from our extended podcast universe, it's Steve Richards, political commentator, ex-BBC correspondent and presenter of the Rock and Roll Politics podcast, which is now twice weekly. Hi, Steve. Hi, Andrew. So what's going on with the new twice-weekly podcast then? Double the demand. Yeah, double the demand, double the excitement. Uh, the Rock and Roll Politics podcast, which is, of course, under the auspices of the great podmasters. We delve deep, and we've been delving deep in British politics, trying to make sense of it, which is the ultimate challenge, as we all know, uh, once a week. But I think such is the sort of chaos that cries out for explanation. Uh, we're going tw- we are twice a week. And the second one will be more often interviews uh, covering some of the themes of the earlier podcast each week. Um, and for example, we've looked a lot at whether leveling up is doable and how. So Lisa Nandy was on the other day. Uh, shadow levelling up secretary and uh, yeah it's great to be able to do it twice it gives more space I'm a big fan of space and letting things breathe podcasts are all about legroom in kite flying news Sajid Javid is uh, saying that patients will be charged for GP appointments and A&E visits calling the present model of the NHS unsustainable he's writing in the Times he's calling for a grown up hard headed conversation about the NHS which sounds an awful lot like code and as somebody who's stepping down in the next election he can say what he likes is it good politics in the middle of a, of a strike like this to start saying, oh, by the way, let's completely reorganise the NHS and remove the principle of free points of views? It, it's terrible politics and impossible politics. And although there are many uh, who would agree with him in the Conservative Party and incidentally beyond, it won't happen. No party will dare go into the next election proposing co-payments. I have to say, you kindly mentioned the po- my podcast One of the things we have looked at is how the heck you get resources into the NHS in a country which expects US levels of taxation and European levels of public services. Quite a few of my listeners have emailed from other countries saying, look, the co-payment thing is not punitive. It works. You can see a GP the same day. Those on lower incomes don't pay. Um, So it's not something I completely rule out, to be honest, because I am so depressed about the tax and spend debate in British politics, where you're you're not really allowed to have a grown-up conversation. But the Javid route is one uh, which is based on the fact that um, he supports the idea of there being no significant higher spending on the NHS and therefore co-payments are the only option. I don't support that idea. But given that um, you know Labour won't have much money to spend, somehow or other, the money has got to go in. But no party will dare say this in advance of the election. The 90s revival is finally go. We've had a weekend of sleaze that would disgrace even John Major's decaying government. All you need is a copy of Loaded and James Cleverly shouting, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off, and it could be 1996. 
Nadim Zahawi has tried to explain his voluntary payment of unpaid tax on a cash benefit, apparently not on adjacent to £20 million, as careless but not deliberate. Rishi Sunak has asked his independent ethics advisor to look into Zahawi's tax affairs, and at least he has got an independent ethics advisor. This week it also emerged that the prospective BBC chairman Richard Sharp introduced someone who could sort out Boris Johnson with a measly £800,000 loan, after which, hey presto, Sharp got Johnson's recommendation for the job of BBC chairman. Steve... Will the entire country be submitting careless but not deliberate tax returns this Friday for the deadline? Quite, it's quite tempting. I mean, you know, you, you know, sometimes with these uh, crises that you can see there are sort of layers of nuance and complexity. This one is very straightforward. And, uh, and as you mentioned, Andrew, in January as well, where some people will be agonizing over how they pay their tax and all the rest of it. Um, for this figure, the Conservative Party chairman to be, as we speak, clinging on, I think it's only going one way and he will go, is extraordinary. It seems to me as straightforward as party gate, this one, in that whatever his defence is, before he became party chairman, he had this uh, exchange with HMRC, presumably when he was chancellor for five minutes in that mad last phase of the Johnson era. And you can't then authoritatively comment on a whole range of things when you've had that kind of experience and being sort of written off as careless, in inverted commas, by HMRC. So what is interesting, I think, is as we move towards the next election, there are so many echoes with the final months of the John Major government, you know, where sleaze and disputes about economic policy and tax and Europe just submerge that government. And it's happening again. And I think it's, you know, there are deeper reasons why it's happening again. The Tory party hasn't really reformed and changed um, in the way that Kinnock tried and agonized to change the Labour Party in the 80s. They haven't really done it. So the same issues that brought them down in 97 have just recurred. The really mad thing is that it's not only that this was going on while he was Chancellor in the past the parcel phase of uh, the end of Johnsonism, but he was running to be leader of the Conservative Party. So he would have had a prime minister if he'd won who was under investigation for tax avoidance. Has that ever happened before? No, no, nor Chancellor. It gets madder uh, in that his behaviour politically was so uh, eccentric as well. He called for Johnson to resign. He then accepted the post of Chancellor under Johnson. He then called for uh, Johnson to resign again and so on. I mean, uh, it was a crazy period. But I thought at the time he was one of those who behaved most outrageously, politically speaking, uh, in the fickle way he was dancing from one uh, pillar to the next post. And as you say, put himself forward as well. But what happens to some of these people, only some, is they get into an almost kind of fantasy mindset when they have been in power for so long and feel cocooned from the sort of normal or, or just are immune to how they will be perceived uh, as the rest of us watch all of this unfold. And I think he's one of those in that position. There's one brilliant bit and aspect of it that the Times found out, which is that Zahawi misled his officials about WhatsApps from David Cameron during the Greensill Capital thing. And he told the Information Commissioner's Office that he didn't know how his messages had been deleted, even though it's actually quite hard to delete messages from WhatsApp. This is a line that not even Rebecca Vardy would have tried. It would have been better just saying the phone (laughs) fell off off a ferry. Arthur, I want to ask you, why is everybody being so mean to an ordinary guy who came to Britain as a penniless Iraqi refugee? Surely he's a great British success story and we should just get off his back. Well, I'm glad you asked me that. So the the first thing that I I think listeners should be aware of is that Zahawi did not come as a penniless Iraqi refugee. It's a a massive myth. Uh, He comes from an extremely well-connected Kurdish family. His grandfather was the governor of Iraq's central bank and was a cabinet minister. His father's a major businessman and is one of the main uh, sort of intermediaries with the Barzani clan who rule Kurdistan from Erbil um, up there in, in North Iraq. Uh, Zahawi himself attended private schools in this country. So there's been a myth. A myth has been constructed about, you know, there are people who've come from Kurdistan to this country who are penniless. He's not one of them. So he's ba- what you're saying is he's basically the 
the Kurdistan's own Boris Johnson with a gilded background. Totally and totally. And, and you know, he hasn't even hidden it. You know, in, in 2015, uh, he was an advisor to a, a listed business uh, uh, on listed on the London Stock Exchange, Gulf Keystone Petroleum, which uh, was um, mining or, you know, raise, uh, exploiting oil up in Kurdistan. So he doesn't hide the fact that he's a very well-connected sort of member of the Kurdish elite. Unless you're HMRC, in which case he does hide it. Well, indeed, at that point, then he's a penniless guy who, when he arrived here, couldn't speak a word of English and was, was you know, running from Saddam Hussein's dastardly uh, thugs. It's a heartwarming story. Yeah. As we've alluded to earlier in the programme, you're a man who knows his way around the security services. The Sunday Times writing on this BBC chairman Richard Sharp, Boris Johnson, £800,000 loan imbroglio here. The Times' source said that Johnson was on the verge of going broke and there were fears that he would not be able to pay his own annual tax bill. What would it mean to have a Prime Minister with such serious money worries? Because surely that is. He was also hanging around with former KGB guys. Surely that is the stuff of a bad Robert Ludlum book. Well, it, it is. I mean, this is, in a way, the problem with Boris Johnson is that that um, uh, all the things that are in those bad books turn out to be real. And, you know, he was going to the uh, wild parties um, in, in the villa in, in um, Perugia and all the rest of it at a time when there are people wondering about, you know, 50 quid is the difference between whether they'll eat this week or whether the lights will be switched on in their homes. The temperature outside is minus something. And here's a guy who, you know, he can't get by on his salary of 180 grand plus the other quarter of a million the Telegraph pays him to write bullshit columns. He needs another 800 grand. And that's all of that is because he can't keep his dick in his pants. Sorry to be crude, but that's Uh basically the reason that he's short of cash. It's a reminder that uh, the people who are running this country just live in a completely different world. They just have no conception of what normal life is, whether it's Zahawi with his generations of privilege, whether it's Johnson needing 800 grand to sort of see him through the year. It, these people are not living like normal people. What I want to know is who in their right mind is going to lend Boris Johnson £800,000? I mean, you you're not going to get it back, are you? He's going to get a lot of IOUs. And- well, yeah, he certainly, you know, and uh, many people who've spent time around him, including, as it happens, uh, uh, former colleagues in the Foreign Office know well that uh, he's a man who's never able to find his wallet. You know, he's he's <laughs> never knowingly bought his round. But, uh, you know, it, it's true that he's apparently earned huge sums giving speeches and something we've actually, I think, talked about on this podcast before. So he's certainly capable of earning the money back. And I'm sure that, his pitch to his would-be creditor was, well, look, the moment I've got rid of this crappy job as prime minister, I can get back to earning some real money. Yasmin, is this why you guys make the president divulge their tax records, supposedly, if they're not Donald Trump? (laughs) I was going to say, if only we could make them. Um, But in theory, yes, that's why the expectation is there. And and I think to to Arthur's point, I mean, the the fact that all of this kind of, co- like, you know, you, you have Johnson's 800K loan, you have Zahawi's tax issues or, or not paying tax. Um, you know, the, the fact that these are all coinciding and it happens to, you know, be happening under a prime minister whose, you know, spouse was was, was found out to have not actually had to, to pay tax in this country. I mean, it all sort of reinforces this grand narrative that there's sort of one rule for the elite and one rule for the rest of us, which, of course, is, is what brought Boris Johnson down ultimately um, in the end, or at least was kind of contributed to it. I can't remember how many scandals there were um, when, when that happened last year. It's all a distant memory. Yeah, it, it just strikes me as a, kind of extraordinary that all these things are happening at once. And yeah, it, it's almost hard. I, I kind of almost pity the, <laughs> the public for keeping track of all of these things, because I, I do feel like th- there isn't one scandal to focus on. There's just so many and they're colliding. Well, I think we should point out that the hero of this affair is the independent tax investigator, Dan Nadel, mm. who's been incredibly tenacious in following this story years before anybody else was uh, was interested. And has also weathered legal threats from Zahawi's team, which have subsequently been shown to be, I think the legal term is total bollocks. <laughs> He's had to, had to fend off a load of waffle. So, so how his legal team are still obfuscating wildly. It, uh, uh, the Times has kind of brought all this stuff together and contextualised it. And they had the scoop at the weekend. But really, it's Dan Nadel who's done all the, all the dog work here, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he has the screenshots to back it up. And, and the reactions almost tell on themselves in a way. I mean, if, if you if you poke the bear and the bear starts like, you know, throwing all these things about like, you know, all these excuses at you, then you kind of know you're on the right track. But he's done, yeah, an, an extraordinary job. That that Times piece is um really worth a read. I was just looking at his Twitter and it sounds like that Zahawi isn't the only MP whose tax affairs he's looking at. So um, and others are looking at. So um, we should expect more, I think, from him. There was a chilling tweet, which will send a cold uh, shock of fear throughout the corridors of Westminster today. She's like, yeah, I've got my eye on another one. Yeah. See you shortly. And like, I wonder who it's going to be. Um, inevitably, poor Vladimir Zelensky had to get the sofa bed out again this week as Boris Johnson made his customary rush visit to Ukraine. My favourite reaction was a tweet that just had the caption above Zelensky's head saying, what have you done now? And I just seem to say the whole thing. <laughs> Are the Ukrainians starting to see, the, see through the Boris Johnson mirage yet, do we think? No, um, at least that wasn't, certainly wasn't my impression from Davos, where Boris Johnson was also attending. He was actually on a panel um, at this Ukrainian breakfast event. I think for all of his domestic ills, he's still incredibly popular among Ukrainians, which I think is probably explains why he's gone. I think this is at least his fifth trip to the country. There's a reason for it. I mean, when, when it comes to talking about Ukraine, I think Johnson is on top form. Um, I'm trying to think back to some of the the hilarious quotes. I was sort of live tweeting the event from there, but you know, he he talked about how, and this was obviously very pointedly directed at at the Germans um, and the, sort of Germany's policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. But he said, you know, kind of started his remarks by saying, give them the tanks. There was a, a sort of hockey metaphor that was thrown into the conversation because Christia Freeland was on it, of course, being the deputy prime minister of Canada, which gave Johnson the opportunity to say that Putin should get the puck out of Ukraine. Oh, I bet they loved that. I'm sure the Canadians were absolutely delighted with Oh, this. yeah. And, you know, and then he said other kind of very Johnsonian things like comparing Putin to um, the fat boy from Dickens making our skin creep. So, you know, I think when it comes to Ukraine, Johnson has always been seen um, both by Zelensky, but, but also by the Ukrainian people as, as a very strong ally. And I think now that he's out of office, you know, he, he can be even stronger in his remarks, uh, telling Putin, Putin to puck off, as it were. It is incredible that this is the guy who was, like, it's only 18 months ago, he was saying, oh, well, tank battles are over. There'll never be a tank battle in Europe ever again. We don't need tanks at all. Steve, just to wrap up this particular chunk of misery, Simon Case seems to be at the centre of all this. And for some reason, Rachel Johnson was on Coonsberg at the weekend, basically pointing the finger for all of Johnson's woes at Simon Case. Do you think he really has a case to answer? Yes, but it's not the uh, central point of all of this. Um, you know, he, he does seem to have been uh, a, a sort of key figure behind the scenes. But as she said, and by the way, what a biased panel that was on Laura Koonsberg. Yeah. I think they were all uh, one way or another, either relatives of Boris Johnson or Tories. Well, uh, to be uh, first, if he's got a lot of kids and a lot of relatives scattered around everywhere. I might be related to him myself, yeah. for all I know. You may be, any of us, Maybe all the listeners. balance on that front is impossible because we're all related <laughs> to it. Um, but... Um, it is uh, so, so, but 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 that's not the main uh, part of all of this. Um, it is the role of elected politicians, and I was I was just thinking how ironic it is that yes, all of this will reinforce uh, great disillusionment about the so-called elites. But of course, Johnson was the beneficiary of that disillusionment when he juxtaposed, you know, before and after the Brexit referendum, Parliament versus the people, the elites versus the people. And it's a really dangerous juxtaposition if um, every kind of single democratic politician is caught up in all of this. Now, of course, that is not the case. And indeed, I was speaking to an MP who lost his seat, who's broke. He can't get work uh, uh, the other day. So there are many different, so it's a bit like football, you know, there are premiership people worth millions, and then there are others suffering. But in this case, uh, to make sense of it, I think you do have to look at a Conservative Party who's been in power for a long time, and who one way or another have propelled to the very top people wholly unsuited for it, uh, on many different uh, levels, one of which is a clearly a sense that they are so cocooned that they are above 
the rules. It happened in a much more minor way, as I said earlier, in the build-up to the final days of Major in the 97 election. That was a government that was a model of integrity compared with this lot. Uh, the problem he had was with some Tory backbenchers. So case, yes, there is an issue about what advice you give these elected politicians, how in awe you are as a relatively new cabinet secretary dependent on the good favour of the prime minister at any given time, and whether you are therefore brutally candid with them. And he's got to address some of those things over time. But it's it's it, it's it's not him. It's the uh, certain elected politicians, two of whom we've been talking about in uh, today's podcast. Meanwhile, in the real world, RIP levelling up. We hardly knew you. No, we really, really hardly knew you. The Times reports that Conservative MPs have been told not to say levelling up anymore and instead use alternatives like stepping up, enhancing communities and even gauging up. Meanwhile, it's emerged that the former but one guy's flagship programme was not quite as egalitarian as we thought. Of the 74 awards in England that could be matched to a constituency, 50 of the awards went to places held by Tory MPs, £1.2 billion out of a total of £1.27 billion of levelling up funding. A few weeks ago, we had Rob Parsons from the Northern Agenda newsletter on the bunker, and he said that areas are being given money for superficial beautification projects so that Conservatives could look good for the next general election. And the Times this week quoted a Conservative MP saying, I've got shops without roofs and streets of boarded up houses, and some people are getting cash for adventure golf. Another told the Mirror that the announcement had been a fuck-up of epic proportions. Arthur, we've known for some time that levelling up was a slogan in search of a policy, but now that we can actually put figures to that, can it be properly buried forever, do you think? Well, I think it can, but only after I've had a chance to have a go at adventure golf, because that sounds awesome. Yeah, you don't need levelling up funding to do that. It's available on the private sector. Ah, OK, right, yeah. Hmm. So basically, we're kind of, you know, we've been told that all these things are going to transform the rest of the country. And it turns out that it's going to places like Rishi Sunak's own constituency of Richmond, New York, won a bid for £19 billion. It's interesting that, isn't it? And I was struck actually looking at the map because one of the things, I live in the southwest of England, which is full of constituencies that vote Tory, but don't get levelling up funding because they always vote Tory. Mm. Whereas the north, which has swung blue, is is being given bribes to, to stay blue. It's a deeply cynical, you know, sort of what in America would be called a pork barrel uh, sort of political campaign. And of course, there are lots of countries, uh, many of which um, perhaps as Brits, we would have historically thought had less sort of resilient democracies, where the way you get something for your district is you elect the ruling party, and then you expect, uh, you know, rewards to flow. And traditionally, in Britain, that that has not been the expectation. But but that that is one of the ways in which the Tories have corrupted our country is by bringing this but almost just, you know, they've taken the shame out of it. You just expect if you want something done, you're going to have to have a Tory MP. You know, otherwise, why should you have any advantage? Yasmin, one of the lines that MPs were given was to use gauging up or stepping up for fear that nobody knows what levelling up means. We've been having levelling up shoved in our ears for three years. And, you know, it's become a it's become a joke in its own right. Was it just a bad slogan all along or does it only work if it's Boris Johnson that's saying it? <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, with, with all these kinds of political slogans, whether it's, you know, leveling, leveling up or, or build back better, it really allows sort of the receiver of the slogan or the voter to kind of interpret what that means. It's a catch-all for, for kind of what they want. So, you know, whether leveling up means more investment in the North, investing in, in better trains or or investing in the NHS, you know, I think it's been allowed quite effectively to be used to mean a lot of things. I mean, that's kind of where it gets its power. I think the problem, of course, comes when you've been using this phrase for many years, as the, as the conservatives have, and, and you don't have a lot to show for it. Um, and, and that's where the trouble comes. But, but I think, you know, as a phrase, leveling up is a lot more effective than fixing your bus service. Steve, um, in the year, the decade to 2018, 2019, the north of England, experienced £346 in funding cuts per person, per head. And this is in a, this, this sort of culminates a period where we're told it's going to be levelling up. Was this, was this a case of, you know, your, your services are falling apart, we're not going to fix them, but here's a nice roundabout. <laughs> well, roundabouts are probably a bit cheaper than 
uh, leveling up. And you see what's really interesting, if you think, step back from that phrase a second, it is quite clever because unlike, say, redistribution, it implies as if by magic, uh, certain parts of the country can be improved without anyone else giving anything up. Whereas redistribution, uh, Blair and Brown didn't dare utter the word because everyone thought they would be the ones giving things up for it to be redistributed elsewhere. Leveling up doesn't imply that. It's just, oh yeah, you're going to be better off. However, as that's, I hadn't read that figure. I mean, it is unsurprising and yet shocking because Leveling up to work would have involved huge levels of investment. And say that's the sort of taboo, going back earlier to what we have talked about with the NHS. And when Michael Gove appointed Andy Haldane as his advisor, the guy from the Bank of England, I know Haldane said to Gove, for this to work will take billions and billions of pounds. And Gove went to the Treasury in the hope of getting some billions, got nothing. So it's not surprising that it's sort of become meaningless and and silly. I mean, the the announcements last week became a a thick of it episode um, in terms of newspapers complaining that their areas hadn't got any Sunak being done for not wearing a a seatbelt. The chaos conveyed the kind of emptiness of the policy yeah, the thick of it aspect uh, was really accentuated by the fact that the Nybevan swimming pool in Skelmersdale didn't get the redevelopment money. And you can kind of imagine them sitting there going, Nybevan, we're not fixing that. <laughs> Rename it after Margaret Thatcher, we might consider it. Um, we should give a special shout out to listener Kathy Owens, who said they've even managed to bugger up pork barrel politics. Is she right? <laughs> Have they managed to like get wrong the thing that you can't get wrong? Yeah, they got it wrong. And it's hilarious because uh, this, uh, I know in number 10, they were really excited about this last week about the, um, in effect, the launching of Sunak once again doing something he did, you know, on a much bigger scale with the furlough. There he was in Morecambe giving away some money with that sort of uh, slightly misjudged, apparent empathic tone, which doesn't quite work. As I say, it was drowned out by those areas who hadn't got money. And and the bids, was because levelling up hasn't been defined, people were putting bids for all kinds of things, and some of them were getting it, some of them weren't. So that's a really good way of putting it, port barrel politics, and it hasn't even worked. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that idea of the competition for the funding is very interesting. The Metro Mayor for the West Midlands, Andy Street, said he wanted ministers to justify why the majority of bids in his area failed, and he called it Westminster's broken begging bowl culture. And pretty much everybody else, everywhere, cited the phrase, the Hunger Games is like areas pitted against one another. And it's like, you know, nobody wants to have Westminster make the decisions centrally. They want to have it devolved. But Westminster simply cannot countenance the idea that money might go out of its control. Exactly. That is the conundrum. And it will be, by the way, when or if Labour get in, because I mentioned the interview I've just done with Lisa Nandy. She said, we're going to give away power on an unprecedented level. But at the same time, Rachel Reeves, as she's Chancellor, will want to show that every hapney they're investing is being spent well. Well, who decides what's well? if they've given the power away. So it's, so in a different way, it's going to be a conundrum for them. But this has been an absolute uh, classic. And you're absolutely right. You know, Sunak from the Treasury will have wanted to have scrutinised every one of these, A, to see whether it works electorally for the Tories, but B, whether on his judgment, the money is being well invested. And immediately, therefore, it doesn't become a sort of local initiative at all. Apparently, in the autumn statement, there's no mention of levelling up round three. And last week, the Prime Minister's spokesperson said there would be a further round of funding, but they couldn't say when. So is that is that basically it for levelling up? No, I don't think it is, to be honest. I think they're going to have to keep going with it. It's interesting that you've told, picked up that their MPs will be asked to call it something else. One way or another, they've got to try and keep on keep hold of those red wall seats or else they've lost. So I don't think we have heard the end of it. But the words... The policy, they've still got to come up with a policy. As we come up to the grim anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a logjam over the supply of tanks is straining the Western alliance and raising a crucial question. Will the West do what it takes to enable Ukraine to win? 
Germany has been accused of dragging its feet over supplying Leopard 2 tanks to the Ukrainians and the foreign ministers of Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania have all exhorted them to get a move on. The German foreign minister Anna Baerbock only today came round to saying that she wouldn't stand in the way of Poland if they were to send their Leopard 2s to Ukraine. German export laws prevent other countries from sending German war material onwards. Yasmin, the, the Chancellor Olaf Schultz is having to play a very careful game at home uh, with public opinion. One poll says the Germans are split on sending their tanks. There's a very slim majority, 46 to 43, in favour. Am I being stupid to ask why Germany is so reluctant to get involved here? Not stupid at all. I think this is the central question that's been haunting um, Germany and has been asked by its European allies um, over the last several days. Um, and, and from what I can tell, speaking to experts on German defense policy, it really seems like Schultz's foot dragging um, on this issue really stems from Germany's own reluctance um, to be seen as taking a more aggressive military stance, especially on its own, not with its allies. Um, But it's also informed by what you just mentioned, which is the lack of German public support for sending the tanks, um, which which I think is influenced both by by Germany's military history, but but also by a fear of escalation um, and and even you know nuclear war. But I think, of course, you know, the critics uh, of this position would would say that you know Germany isn't acting on its own. In fact, that many of its allies have given you know Ukraine has been given tanks, um, but by others, not not least the UK. Um, I think that you know. Th- the criticism that it's taking now is it really does need to rise to the occasion. Um, and, you know, it's worth remembering, too, that, you know, Germany did take a pretty significant shift last year when it announced, you know, in, in really contravention of, of its usual policy, that it was going to give Ukraine this abundant amount of support. I, I don't want to use the German term because I'm afraid of butchering it, though, if any of you want to take a stab at it, please do. But but I, I think that, you know, that that's still very much true. I think Germany has done quite a lot for Ukraine, but but I think it's it's foot dragging on the issue of the Leopard 2 tanks um, is is undermining that that narrative. It's been criticized by allies, but but I think it's also been, you know, criticized by by the likes of of, of Ukrainians themselves, of course. Um, Zelensky said at Davos, and, and I think this was in a way sort of pointed at the, the discussion that's being had now, that the time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state to kill. So I think Ukrainians are, are very frustrated that, you know, their allies aren't making decisions more quickly. Um, and, and I think, you know, if, if you, Germany does decide indeed to, to, um, to give the tanks, you know, of course, their foreign minister made the statement today that they wouldn't stand in the way of other countries giving them the tanks. They will be seen as, as being dragged to that position. So I think in terms of really controlling the narrative, I think Germany and, and the Schultz government is kind of failing in this regard. They're, they're being seen to be forced into positions rather than taking them themselves. Arthur, I mean, something that just came to my mind while we were speaking then. I mean, given the shamelessness of of, uh, Russian disinformation, you can fully see why Germany would be concerned because Russia imagines that there are Nazis where there aren't Nazis, goes for the most, you know, outrageous claims. And if Germany is, you know, any more involved in the Ukrainian war, the immediate shouts of Operation Barbarossa and it's Hitler all over again. You can absolutely see that coming from the Kremlin, can't you? Well, yeah, I, I personally, I think that's a bit over generous. I think that Germany, you know, Schultz announced the Zeiten vendor, which I think was the word that Yasmin was searching that for. That was, thank um, you. <laughs> uh, and yet they haven't actually delivered on it. And I think I feel extremely disappointed because ultimately their pusillanimity, it undermines Ukraine, it undermines the wider kind of European approach, and it, it helps the Russians. And, and, um, it really leaves one wondering whether they understand what's at stake here. Mm. The UK has sent 14 tanks, which is great, but, you know, the Leopard 2s are at the centre of it. I mean, what, what is, what's so special about the Leopard 2s? Yeah. Is there just an awful lot of them? Yeah, so this is a key thing, and, and there's obviously been talk about the American tanks as well, the Abrams tanks. So the only tank that can work for Ukraine is the Leopard 2. No other tank is an option, and th- th- there are two reasons for this. One is... The uh, the American tank, the Abrams, um, runs off petrol and the Leopard 2 runs off diesel. Ukraine doesn't have the logistics to operate a petrol tank fleet, so it has to be the Leopard 2. But perhaps even more significantly, there are 2,300 Leopard 2s in Europe because it was a very successful tank. It was bought by almost every country in Europe, in continental Europe. 
And that means there are a lot of spare ones knocking around. The Finns have a hundred going begging. The Poles have another uh, a big, big sort of uh, you know um, fleet, as it were, on ice. You know, as listeners probably are aware, the Germans. It's not just that they don't want to give the leopard to, but they won't let others give them. Yeah. I mean that that policy is just evolving now. So this could revolutionise uh, Ukraine's situation in the war. And I think the idea that somehow. Well, because yeah, Schultz came up with this ludicrous idea, well, well, we'll allow the tanks if the Americans send their tanks. I mean, this is to ignore all the other stuff that America has sent far in excess of anything that Germany has ever sent to Ukraine. So, so the idea that somehow the Americans are the ones who haven't really put their shoulder to the wheel on this particular subject is nonsensical. Going back to the early days of the war, we all remember seeing those stories about how the Russian armour turned out to be like appallingly badly maintained. Yes. And the logistics were just all over the place and, the you know, all the machinery is out of date and, you know, had, hadn't been properly maintained. Presumably then, if 2,000 Leopard 2s could be put into the field, this would be transformative. Uh, two, 200, yes. It would be transformative. But I think what we have to realise is that uh, every, everybody's understanding of this war has been evolving. And, and so it is perfectly reasonable to say the thing that in February last year I would never have considered possible is now, you know, uh, in the mid-range of, of, of sort of normality. The, the argument that Russia is going to escalate to a nuclear war seems to me it's a very shaky argument because if Ukraine is defending its own territory, which it still is, um, there's no there's no serious evidence that that's on the table. So what we're actually saying is, do we want Ukraine to be able to drive Russia out of its territory or not? And if we do, then I think we have to go all in. And I think, you know, I, I never thought I'd be someone, you know, saying that Boris Johnson is right about anything, but he is right about this, that, that you can't, you can't say, well, we want Ukraine to win, but we don't want to give them the tools to win because that might annoy Russia. Well, yeah. you know, Ukraine winning has to annoy Russia. There, there's no, there's no sort of two ways about that. Are there other areas where, um, I mean, as you just said, you know, the America has put in an awful lot yeah. while um, Europe has prevaricated. Yeah. Are there other things that the European Union countries and the NATO affiliated countries could be doing yes. that they're not right now? Yeah, they can do more on air defence. They can do more on fighter jets. One thing about this war is that, of course, Ukrainians are burning through huge stocks of artillery, ammunition, and so on. So Europe needs to keep manufacturing things. It's not just about, you know, gifting them a new type of tank. It means they've got to keep this thing supplied and, and on, on the road. I'm involved with some people who are uh, supplying basic vehicles to some of the less favoured uh, Ukrainian military units. You know, let us not imagine that all of the Ukrainian military has um, up-to-date sort of NATO spec kit. A lot of Ukrainians are holding out just to get winter uh, uniforms. So um, they might be mildly better equipped than the Russians, but only just. Just to add quickly to what Arthur mentioned about sort of the self-defense weapons. I mean, this was something that came up at Davos again and again when I was talking to Ukrainian lawmakers. And they actually made this really salient point, which is this. If we can defend ourselves, if you give us the tools to defend ourselves, then we don't need to spend like as much time talking about reconstruction. If we have the like means to defend ourselves, we won't have as much to rebuild, which I thought was really interesting too. So, you know, obviously a lot of the focus is on tanks and, and on sort of, uh, you know, that type of weaponry, but Ukrainians are also really just asking for, for the ability for, for more defense capability, which, which I think is worth noting as well. Steve, as Arthur was just mentioning, Boris Johnson, horrible though it is uh, to say so, has actually done probably the right thing on Ukraine when he was prime minister. Maybe it's just from his Churchill complex, but at least he's done it. Do you detect the same level of commitment from Sunak's government? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is less personal because uh, Johnson is uh, a showman and was a showman. And, and to be honest, I think his recent visit to, to Ukraine, although invited, was showmanship. He's a backbench MP. Uh, he has now no power. Uh, over the direction of policy. But I think broadly, the policy will be the same. There was a sort of panic when Sunak apparently ordered an audit, uh, which is a very Sunak-esque thing to do on uh, expenditure, uh, on the war and, and, and outcomes and so on. Uh, but even if he has some doubts and he showed no indication that he has, he would be in no position 
to uh, diminish the UK contribution. Whether he uh, raises it in a significant way, as Arthur was suggesting, might be necessary along with greater EU intervention, I'm not sure. Um, But um, I think the kind of level of commitment in practical terms that Johnson showed will continue, and indeed he hasn't got the space to reduce it. It commands support across the political spectrum. But I I, I am quite cynical, I'm afraid, about the the Johnson relationship with Ukraine. I I know he broadly got it right, but I also think he used it. And I think he is continuing to use it in his uh, uh, part, I assume fantasy anyway, of, of coming back. And uh, as prime minister, and and, and it, it just jarred with me watching him in Ukraine the other day, um, because as I say, he's a backbench MP. He should be reflecting on his uh, dramatic fall. Uh, and instead, in a way, I think he is continuing part of him anyway, to think he is still really the great war leader in number 10 in you know the Churchill complex that you referred to, Andrew. Yeah, it's not John Major going to the cricket, is it? It's clearly been part of Putin's strategy to make life in Western Europe so costly, uncomfortable and strained that we will withdraw our, our community to Ukraine. In the UK, you can quite easily see a populist Farage-type character popping up and agitating along the lines of why are you paying £400 a month for gas to protect these people in a faraway country of which we know little? And yet, there doesn't really seem to be that yet. What do you think that is, Steve? Well, first of all, it might, if this carries on for a long time into next winter and beyond, as it well might. And second, it's it's because in a way... Um, although, remember, early on, Farage did try and raise uh, doubts about uh, any intervention, but it didn't take off. And I think here the clarity of what happened, you know, uh, Putin invading an independent Ukraine is so clear and has commanded support across the political spectrum um, that really there hasn't been space. What form would the populism take at this relatively early phase and say if it continues there may well be space i mean people's willingness uh, it looks as if energy bills are going to the cost of energy is going to continue falling but if by next winter it's up again uh, because of uh, shortages and huge demand um, i wonder whether the the durability will be uh, as great but but i think that's why the clarity of the case the range of support and of course in the media as well populists need media support and it's not there at the moment arthur a lot of people thought we'd be waiting for spring to sort of unlock the war as it were but right now we're hearing a lot of officials saying that ukraine has a window of opportunity now to force Russia out while Russia is in relative disarray and before the ground starts to thaw. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I, I wouldn't want to sort of guess uh, what, what you know the Ukrainian high command is planning, but it's clear that Russia's um, sort of secondary mobilisation uh, has kind of reached a bit of a buffer. You've got the, the so-called Wagner troops, but they're really not a significant force. They're just significant in one place around Bakhmut. So it might be that Ukraine thinks it can sort of take advantage of, of this winter moment. But Ukraine, of course, ne- ne- you know, needs a kit to be able to do so. So we come back to the, the debate about tanks and other, other equipment. So we've come to the end of the podcast, which means escape routes. How have the panel been taking their minds off the appalling misery and continuing horror of politics? Yasmin Sahan, what's been your escape route for the past few days? I was going to say freezing, but that's no longer (laughs) quite as relevant. Um, Well, I did return back to the UK to discover to my immense shock that Love Island is back. Um, I missed the first week. Will I probably try to melt my brain by catching up? Absolutely. So that's probably what I'll be doing. It seems like it's never off. It, it's yeah. like fashion week. It's every other week. It's a big, I mean, I was actually a bit, so like I was actually shocked and appalled when I heard that it was back mostly because I was like, I don't know if I can really commit to this again. It's like two months <laughs> of like every day, 9 p.m. It's, it's, it is a huge, but it is also, I think, integral I've found to just chatting with people randomly. It's kind of like the World's Cup, but 
for more people. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's not you, it's them. Um, Arthur Snell, how about you? Are you like uh, drinking in Love Island at late at night? I've never watched even one second of Love Island and I'm very comfortable uh, keeping it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, my escape route is not Love Island. Uh, no, I, I recently read an amazing novel, which... Um, I'd never before read a book that would be sort of classified as in the horror genre because oh. I'm easily scared. Um, so, uh, but in this particular case, I, I happen to know the author. The book is called Loot, and the author Jennifer Thorne, and and it it came out uh, late last year, and it's. It's set on an island uh, sort of off the coast of Britain, which sort of could be Lundy or somewhere like that in the Bristol Channel. And it's a really, it's beautifully written. It's gripping. It's it's uh, sad, but also in a sort of kind of funny as well. Um, and I can heartily recommend it. Give us the setup then. Is this loot as in Joe Orton, Elder Blow T, or is it loot as in the thing they played in the Middle Ages? Uh, neither. The, the, the island, for reasons that I, that I don't think are explained in the novel, is is called loot. And it's sort of, it's kind of um, Wicker Man meets Midsommar, you know, Ooh. that terrifying Swedish movie. Um, and it, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, it, it's kind of every seven years on this island, which is otherwise a paradise, seven people die on a particular day and it always happens and no one's quite sure why. And yeah, you, you just got to read it. This sounds amazing. Folk horror. Folk horror. That's, That's what I'm exactly after. That's what it is. Steve Richards, what have you been reading, watching, listening to or otherwise experiencing to take your mind off politics? Yeah, reading for reasons I won't go into. Uh, Shakespeare's Richard II. Uh, oh. But it doesn't take my mind off politics because it's all about, it's, a, it's partly a thriller, <laughs> but it's all about the fragility of power ambition, trust, uh, who the ambiguity of loyalty and, you know, and of course it takes you straight into modern Britain, so it's no escape mm. at all. The other thing I've been doing is watching Spurs, but when you watch Spurs, you want to escape back into politics. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't found the ideal escapist route over the recent days. Well, St- Steve, uh, Richard II is by far my favourite Shakespeare play and written in rhyming couplets. It's an amazing, uh, yeah. oh, amazing that's really work, interesting. And, and the rhyming couplets, of course, are, uh, which seem so simple and direct, are partly aimed at obscuring the mean. You know, it's, it's very... Yeah. yeah, oh, that's interesting, Arthur. Well, my escape route says I've, I've been on a gig overdose at the weekend. I went to see Half Man, Half Biscuit on Friday at the Camden Electric Ballroom. Absolutely amazing. Britain's greatest band. They did Tommy Walsh's Eco House. They did Joy Division Oven Gloves. They did all the hits and more. And then on Saturday, I went to see, because I'm middle-aged now, I went to see DJs with an orchestra. I went to see Fabio and Groove Rider doing the history of drum and bass with a full orchestra. And it was remarkable. If any listeners are uh, ageing ravers like me, it was all the hits. It was, uh, you know, Adam F and uh, all the classics of drum and bass. And at the end, UK Apache, the MC UK Apache came on and did Original Nutter, the most ridiculous drum and bass tune ever put out. And it was fantastic. So I urge you, if you're in London and you've got a chance to go to Brockwell Park in May to see Fabio and Groove Rider with the Outlook Orchestra, you will be very glad that you did. And who says we don't give people a broad cultural spread on this podcast? (laughs) Shakespeare, drum and bass... Folk horror. Folk horror. We've got it all. It's a Love Island. And Love Island. All bases covered. There you go. And that's the end of the show. Thank you for joining us, Yasmin Sahan. Thanks for having me. Arthur Snell. Always a pleasure. And special guest, Steve Richards. Thank you. Listeners, don't miss Rock and Roll Politics now twice weekly. It's available wherever you get. Oh, God, what now? We'll be back on Friday or on Thursday if you're back is on Patreon. And also, don't forget Oh, God, What Now live on Wednesday, the 15th of February at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. Now here's Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional shout-outs to more of our patient Patreon people. So hello and a huge thank you from me to Thomas Pallister, Rochelle Cousineau, Letitia Carr, Matthew Appleton, David Tate, Hugh Ricketts, Sam Watts and Beth Dawson. And hi from me to Judith Mima Toms, Will, Mark Francis, Jeff Stevenson, Stuart Hamlin... Will Shorex, Stephanie Butland, and Mark Anthony B. And for me, it's a big shout to Regan O'Driscoll, Kate Sloss, Edward Savage, Robert Wells, Philip Fry, take my money, Daffith Griffiths, Thomas Warbrick, and Casey Johnson. We'll see you on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon. Oh, God, what now? It was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran and Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. 
with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. And if HMRC are listening, all my accounts are above board, no need to investigate. Moving on. <clears throat> Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. <laughs>